If you're new here, I'm uh, Monty, one of the teaching pastors, and I want to welcome you as well and say happy Mother's Day to our moms. Well, we are in week two of a new series within the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And um, as you might have kind of picked up from that intro video, and if you were here last week, you know that we're going to really be focusing very, very uh, intently on body life, how we do this right here together. And so I, I want to practice this just a little bit this morning, and uh, I'm going to invite you to engage, if you would. Uh, if you and I were just sitting down having a cup of coffee together, and, and I said, you know what, I, I, I know everybody's got stuff going on, all kinds of hopes and dreams and hard stuff and great stuff and everything else. If, if I could pray for you, what would you ask me to pray for? Just one thing. I want you to think about that. You probably don't need to think hard. Probably whatever jumps into your mind, that's the thing. I want you to write that down somewhere, maybe on your outline or maybe just make a mental note. If you've got your phone, you can throw that in your notes. But just think about that. If you and I are sitting down together and I said as a brother in Christ, man, I'd love to pray for you. How can I pray? What would that be? Now just tuck that away. We'll come back to it. Let me shift focus to mealtime. I want you to think for just a second about your favorite meal ever. I don't know if you can remember that. I think Jeff has a favorite meal every week. He always says, this is the best food I've ever eaten. I'm like, wow, man. I need to know the people that cook for you. What's the most unique meal you've ever eaten? Think about that for a moment. An extravagant meal, something that was just over the top. Or maybe your most meaningful meal. I don't know if that triggers any memories. I remember uh, as a dad with young kids, uh, some Saturday mornings I would get up and we would do Peter pancakes. And uh, what the kids would, uh, I'd be in the kitchen cooking things up and they'd be in the other room and they'd come in and I'd throw them out there and they'd be all kinds of colors, red, blue, green, whatever. They're like, dad, how did these pancakes change colors? I'm like, Peter pancakes. I don't know, man. It's pretty cool though, isn't it? They loved it. I remember uh, I've had several all-you-can-eat experiences that were very memorable. Um, <laughs> typically painful by the end of the meal, but uh, in Kauai of all places, that's where I met my wife, and I remember the all-you-can-eat buffet uh, at the hotel uh, Kauai. That was that was pretty good. That was hard to forget. I remember meal train meals as my wife was recovering from cancer. Those were pretty meaningful people would bring something very simple but thoughtful just to say we love you, we're for you, we're we're praying for you. I remember being in India after a day of village ministry in this little bitty village in the middle of nowhere and we showed the Jesus film and all these people came out and 
we were exhausted by the end of the day. It's about 11.30 at night and we have about a five hour drive to get back to where we can get in bed. And this sweet family said, you, you can't leave. We made you dinner. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> it's a little past dinner time, but we couldn't leave. And we sat down and these sweet, sweet people just served us for about two hours. And we got home late, but man, what a meal. Meals are a big deal, aren't they? Um, most of the time, it's actually not about the food, it's about the company. It's who you're with. Uh, a classmate of mine from seminary wrote this about mealtime. He said, sharing tables is one of the most uniquely human things we do. No other creature consumes its food at a table. And sharing tables with other people reminds us there's more to food than fuel. We don't eat only for sustenance. To take up a place at the table is to occupy sacred space. The people we love most sit with us there. Meals are shared, stories are told, sins are confessed. We laugh together, we cry together. Together we remember where we've been and we dream of where we might one day go. We pray at that table and there we experience God's nearness, God's kindness, and God's love. Man, that's good. Meals have played a very instrumental role in the unfolding narrative of the Bible. Uh, I want to highlight five meals in just a moment, but you know, the first miracle that Jesus ever did, you know where he did it? At a wedding feast. Remember that when he fed the 5,000, he took some fish and some loaves, and that was a place of revelation. He used a meal to do that. What did the dad do when his prodigal son came home? Gave him a banquet, blew it out for his wayward son. And then I love what King David prays in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's, here's the punchline. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. See, table means presence. And he doesn't fear because he knows God is there and they share a table. Meals are a big deal. The story of the Bible begins with a, a very unfortunate meal at a tree with some fruit. It wrecks everything. That was a meal. Passover was begun for the people of Israel in Exodus 12. A sacrifice was made and it was associated with the deliverance of God's people. The, the Jewish people still celebrate the Seder today, an, an instructional meal to help them envision a God who loves them and wants to deliver them. 
the Last Supper. Can you imagine having been there? All that God, God did in the sun with those people, those, that small group of men, Luke 22. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to talk a lot about today, remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, right here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And then finally, all of history, all of history is going to end with a meal, a wedding feast, when our Savior returns and makes all things right and new. Meals are a big deal. Mealtime at the Waldrons growing up wasn't that great. Uh, many nights, I remember sitting across from my sister with mom and dad at each end of the table, yelling at one another, treating one another horribly, always in conflict, and we were spectators. And week after week, night after night, I watched a marriage dissolve over dinner. The desecration of that mealtime, which was meant to be a place of unity and connection and community and, and love, that place broke my home. Meals are a big deal. And in Corinth, their meals looked a lot like the meals at my house. And that's what Paul's addressing here. He's going he's gonna to come in and correct um, contempt that was carelessly practiced in the context of a meal. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start in verse 17, but I want you to imagine that, you know, in, in body life, church life, they would gather together often uh, daily. And there would be, if you want to put it in our language, sort of a potluck, right? So they're going to actually share a meal together, but then in the context of that, they were to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we'll, we'll really get into in here in just a moment. But uh, in that place of gathering, there was great fragmentation. Look at verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part, that's probably an understatement, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I want to hone in on that phrase, when you come together as a church. That word church is ecclesia. It's a, it's a gathering. It's an assembly. It's a community. And there's uh, the only association we might make with that is family. It's a familial thing, like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So you would expect that there's an incredible expression of unity, intimacy in those gatherings. And yet what, what they're experiencing is um, division, factions. 
If you think about our, our theme for this series, harmony, it's the opposite of that. It's dissonance. Have you ever heard just a whole bunch of noise that's all out of tune and it's not going together and it doesn't sound very good? That's what, that's what people experience. If they just kind of dropped into one of those gatherings in Corinth, that's what it would be like. Just a bunch of noise. No harmony. They were together in appearance only. They just happened to be in the same room, but that's it. Nothing more than that. Together is supposed to be better, as we say it around here. But the way they were doing it, it was, according to Paul, worse. And at the heart of it, there, there were cultural distinctions that were very common in the community of Corinth. And then I'd say probably throughout that culture, there were distinctions being made between people often socioeconomic, but perhaps ethnic or otherwise. And so they would, this is funny, segregate their congregation. They were out of tune. In verse 19, he says there must be factions. He may be highlighting the, the revelatory quality of division. So there, there can be a benefit when there's division, we can begin to discover what is genuine and what isn't. He's not celebrating that, but he's saying that can happen. We can begin to see who's really in this thing for unity and who's not. But the bottom line was, and if you've ever been to a symphony, typically before they begin to perform, there's you'll hear one instrument that will play a note. And then everybody in the symphony is supposed to tune to that note so that they're all on the same page. And then they're able to play in harmony, play together. But there's no note here. And there's no trying to get on the same page. It's just everybody doing their own thing. More specifically, Paul in, in verse 20 says, when you come together, so now we're going to see what's, what's actually happening here. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They were eating it, but they weren't really celebrating it. He says in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. <laughs> this is some of the harshest language we'll find in 1 Corinthians. This is incredibly disturbing, sort of like if you'd have sat down at my table with me and my sister and every night, like, what is going on here? This is so out of place. So you've got a group of people and they're self-absorbed. They come in and they're just thinking about what they want, what they're going to eat, how they're going to roll, who they're going to be with without any thought for who else might be in the room and what other needs might be around them. 
Verse 21, neglect, discrimination, partiality. These are so offensive. And then self-indulgence. You got some guy in the corner that he's just, he's gone. He's been drinking uh, for, throughout the whole party without any thought for anybody else. It's just total self-absorption. And this was as offensive, so keep this in mind. Remember in chapter 10, Paul was highlighting those meals that were taken in temples in the city, secular meals that were idolatrous because they were kind of done in conjunction with worship of pagan gods. And Paul's saying, no, you, you can't do that. You can't take the Lord's Supper, honor him with a meal, and then go take another meal down the street at some secular temple and worship a a pagan god, even though he doesn't even exist. Like, you can't do that. This is just as offensive to take the Lord's Supper with utter disregard for anybody else who's around you. It's not a private affair. Meals are a big deal. He says that to do this is to despise the church of God, but somehow they probably thought, I'm going to church. Go hang out with my family. But they're all about themselves. What must break the heart of God most significantly is that phrase, humiliating those who have nothing. You see, in their culture, it was very common that if you went over to one of these gatherings, the, the well-to-do got to go into the inner sanctum of the house, the place where the meal was gen- generally served. And then everybody else just kind of filled in wherever they could and, and just kind of ate whatever they could get their hands on, kind of the scraps. And so, so this is the church And people show up, and if you're a have, well, you get invited to the room where all the haves hang out. And if you're a have-not, well, why don't you go, why don't you go sit somewhere over there, and and if we have anything left over, we'll bring it out to you. It's heartbreaking. It's humiliating. It would be like Jesus saying, you know, I came to take care of your sin. Why don't you go sit over there for a little while and if I feel like it, I might help you out. You see how just utterly offensive that would be to those who are in absolute need, like they can't do anything for themselves. And that's exactly who Jesus came to serve. People like us who can't do anything for ourselves. We need him to save us. It's a shocking irony, a meal being a place of division. So Paul confronts this church with a meal that Jesus gave them, which they were not taking very well and he's saying I want to invite you to this table and it's a transformational table it's a place where you change and what you're going to do when you come to that table is you're going to practice redemptive memory 
You're going to think about some things that really change the way you view yourself and the way you view life and the way you view others and the way you view your future. It's going to change everything. Commentator uh, N.T. Wright says this, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. So here it is, verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, take this meal in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a pretty cool pattern here that Jesus practiced, and we also saw it at the feeding of the 5,000. You might write down these three words, blessing, breaking, and giving. Blessing, breaking, and giving. So Jesus blessed this meal, which was also an act of gratitude, celebrating God's provision for him, He broke the bread, which was emblematic of him having his own life broken for us, and then he gave. That's the picture. That's the meal. He says, this is my body, and this has been horribly misunderstood. Uh, It wouldn't have been in its immediate context, but over time, we have a way of twisting things. There's, there's four ways of understanding that phrase. One is transubstantiation. These are big theological words, but basically that's the idea that the elements that we're actually going to take in a moment literally transform into the literal body and blood of Christ. Then there's consubstantiation, which is the literal presence of Christ, though the elements themselves don't change. That's another view. A third view is the spiritual presence, which would look at those elements as a means of grace. So there is actually a delivery of grace through those elements, though not as much emphasis on the uh, either physical, literal, or spiritual presence of Christ. And then lastly, and this would be the view that we would hold as a church, is the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. And that is that these elements are emblematic. They represent the body and the blood of Christ. There's nothing mystical or magical about them. They literally serve an illustrative purpose to help us connect with what Christ did when he broke, had his body broken and when his blood was shed. They're, they're supposed to bring us back to that redemptive memory to help us appreciate the gift of our Savior. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. Paul writes it twice here. Uh, we would call it an ordinance. So it's not just something that we kind of go, yeah, I wonder if we want to take communion. 
if I feel like it. It's, it's actually supposed to be a part of the worship gathering, the, the recurring habit of the church. That's why we, we schedule it every month. It's a part of what we do because it was commanded to us. The frequency isn't dictated, but the habitual nature of it is. So what are we supposed to remember? Here's three things, and it's probably bigger than this, but first of all, we're supposed to remember why he came. Why he came. That meal. He, he, came, he said he came to seek and save the lost. That meal reminds us of that, Luke 19.10. It reminds us of what he did in Philippians 2, it talks about Christ emptying himself. There's another fancy word, kenosis. It's, it's literally Christ setting aside those God uh, divine attributes, taking on flesh, being a real man, experiencing a broken world, but doing all of that so that he could become our substitute, so he could actually stand in our place and take the penalty of our sin on himself. He couldn't have done that were he not a man. So he emptied himself of the glory of heaven so that he could dwell among us and become our savior. So this meal reminds us of why he came and what he did and how he loved. That's the third thing. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we deserved to be sent away from the table, Christ died for us. He served himself up for us so that we could have a place at the table. That's how much he loved you and me. Sinners, rebels, those who have contempt for God and each other. Paul says that when we take this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's this memorial feature of the meal that does point us backward and we see this sacrifice, this sufficient sacrifice that Jesus made once and for all that is our sole source of forgiveness. But he suggests that we're not done and this meal isn't permanent. It points us forward to when he comes, like we're gonna celebrate this meal, we're gonna remember redemptively until he returns. And then you know what? We don't have to take that meal anymore because we're with him. He's present in a very literal sense. And we get to enjoy that for eternity. Meals, especially this one, they're a big deal. They really help us think rightly. Paul ends this segment with somewhat of a warning, a caution. Um, and he's basically saying carelessness, especially around this meal, is really consequential. 
We ought to be very careful about how we approach this, but I, I want to talk specifically about what that means. Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let me work backwards through that little segment there. The, the consequence of carelessness around the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is judgment. But these are believers, and we heartily support the idea that of eternal security, once saved, always saved. You, you don't lose your salvation because you blew it at the Lord's Supper, okay? Um, however, judgment means discipline, and apparently discipline can include weakness, illness, and even death, physical death. So, we ain't playing around here. We, we need to come to this meal with, with great sobriety about what it represents, what God wants us to remember, and how he wants us to respond. So, in light of the, the consequence for being careless here, he offers a suggestion. Practice self-examination. Come to this meal introspectively, open to what the Spirit might reveal or expose in you that needs to be addressed. Now, keep in mind, and we, the church does this horribly. We take we take things out of context and we start applying them in a lot of ways that weren't really intended where they show up in the Bible. That's not altogether wrong. We just need to be careful about it. What he's talking about here in terms of self-examination is he's saying, listen, when you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a gathering of the church, you better be cautious about self-absorption, self-indulgence, neglect, partiality. That's the primary context here. You need to be thinking about somebody other than yourself. How often do we come to this meal and we are totally absorbed with us? He's going, you got to look beyond that. Let me talk about this idea of drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Uh, I think we naturally kind of think I, I need to clean everything up and confess all my sins and make sure I'm all together before I take the meal. And that's, that's actually not the idea. Because do you really think that you could possibly do enough to somehow in and of yourself become worthy of this meal? No, the whole point of the meal is to say you're not worthy. But he is. And that's why you can come. 
So what you do is you come and you agree with God, man, I need everything that this meal represents. Lord, I'll, I'll confess, I'll acknowledge, I'll admit my need. And I'm going to thank you that Christ has already done everything that could possibly be done on my behalf. There's nothing left other than for him to return. And so I come to this meal, not once I've got myself together, but to get myself together. And I take that meal and I go, Lord, thank you. I, I am one of those I'm one of those guys that needs to be in the other room. And you invite me right up to the table. You give me a seat. You say, you're welcome here. Not because you clean yourself up, but because I clean you up. This unworthy manner is an attitude, not a condition. So as you come to the table, you don't want to have a careless, dismissive kind of attitude. This isn't just another meal. This is the meal. And what a precious gift that we get to eat this meal together. You and me, I may not know you from Adam, but if we know Christ, we're family. And we get to share this table together and celebrate the goodness of our God. Mm. And here's what happens. When we take this meal, it, it becomes this catalyst for growth and change. That's really what it's intended to do. It's not a, a mechanical cleansing. It's, it's this picture of the kindness of the Lord and Paul says in Romans that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to what? Repentance, change, growth, maturity. That's what this meal is for. I love how Paul ends here. He's practically speaking. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another it seems so simple, so small, but it's, it's profound. Just imagine that person who came who, in the first century context, doesn't have anything and couldn't get off work, you know, or whatever, and they show up and, and somebody that they know has everything says, come on in, you can sit right here next to me. Man, that means something means a lot. Wait for one another. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another. Defer to one another. Submit to one another. Pray for one another. That's what I want to ask you to do. You remember I asked you to log that prayer request? I want you, and I know this is going to be uncomfortable, and I honestly don't even care. <laughs> I want you to look at a person next to you and I want you to ask them to pray for you. Like out loud, I want you to say, here's what I need you to pray for me. 
And then as a church family, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for each other because that's what a family does, especially when we get around the table. Can you guys do that? All right, so take a minute. Look to somebody nearby. I don't want anybody to be missed. I want every one of you, if you had to introduce yourself, do that. Hi, I'm Monty. Pray for me. If I were to close my eyes, I could see us sitting around the table. Such a beautiful sight, you guys. Makes the heart of God glad. And I hope that you won't just pray today. I hope that you will think of one another maybe throughout this next week, um, next month. Maybe you'll bump into each other when you come to this gathering. And uh, this will be a, an ongoing practice. So as you're finishing up praying, we're going to transition to communion. What a perfect way for us to come to this meal, mindful of one another. You'll be released from your rows. Just come to the middle. Everybody will come to the front. Uh, community group leaders, if you can go ahead and make your way up there. And we'll take this meal together. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, stand with me. Jeff will uh, release you. Let's sing to the Lord. Let's celebrate family and this meal. And uh, yeah, let's honor him together with worship.